Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is George Steele. I'm the director of the Miller Theater uh, here at Columbia. Uh, I've been here since November, uh, so I've received a marvelous uh, season of programming, which I'm afraid I can't take credit for, uh, but I am enjoying enormously. Uh, and perhaps most uh, magnificent uh, in the programming that I inherited is this uh, marvelous four-part series on The New Intolerance, uh, which is a joint uh, production of the Penn American Center and the writing division here at the Columbia School of the Arts. Um, tonight is the third evening in the series, which is occupied uh, all the Wednesdays in February, uh, The New Intolerance and Race. We have a magnificent panel. Uh, it's been my great pleasure to sit backstage with them briefly uh, and get a preview of uh, what's to come, which should be uh, quite nice. Uh, I know you'll enjoy it. Uh, I just remind you that the last of these panel discussions uh, will be in another week's time, the last Wednesday this February, uh, The New Intolerance in the Arts. Um, should also be uh, very nice. I hope to see you here. Anyway, thanks very much for coming. Well, uh, good evening, uh, everybody. I'm Anthony Appier, and I'm going to be in charge of moderation this evening. I'll leave extremism and intolerance to, the, to everybody else. Um, and let me just uh, begin by saying, you have uh, programs in which, uh, which contain biographical information about each of our panelists today. I just want to uh, mention about all of them that I may be one of the few people in the world who is able at the moment to say that they are all distinguished writers. That's because I know something about the unpublished work of the two uh, authors of books that are coming out this year that I know about, uh, who are sitting on, immediately on my left, and I'll tell you who they are in a minute. Uh, but that's important to mention because the framing uh, basis of our gathering was that this was put together by the, the writing uh, division here at Columbia and the um, Penn American Center, which is obviously an organization of writers, on whose board I sit. Um, obviously, we could um, uh, we, we could discuss many things under the rubric of uh, intolerance and race. Uh, and so, what I want to do the, just at the beginning is to uh, say a little bit myself uh, about some of the uh, just some brief thoughts about how we might go into this discussion. And then I'm going to uh, start by asking each of the panelists to say something in response to some questions, and then we're going to have a discussion. That should go on for about an hour. At the end of the hour, uh, I'm going to ask uh, you to uh, join in by coming up to the microphone if you, if you are able to. Uh, if not, I will try and uh, notice you and ask you to ask uh, a question or make a statement. At that time, just so that we have the ground rules clear at the start, I hope you will try and say something relatively um, focused, and if you have a question, tell us. Uh, who it is that it's addressed to, that's the point at which moderators become unpopular, and my job will be to um, cut you off if uh, I think things are going on uh, too long without a point. Um, in <laughs> so let me just, just begin by saying this. Uh, there's an elegant little book uh, which was published a couple of years ago by uh, Michael Walzer called On Toleration. And in that book, he says at one point, my subject is toleration, or perhaps better, the peaceful coexistence of groups of people with different histories, cultures, and identities, 
which is what toleration makes possible. So that, as this uh, uh, definition or suggestion of Waltz's makes clear, the, pro the political problems, the public or social problems of toleration arise from the coexistence of communities with distinct identities, beliefs, values or practices, cultures and identities that are different. And so there are problems that arise in cultures like ours and like all modern cultures in which there's a good deal of cultural and social diversity. And so intolerance, surely in one sense, is just what happens when this kind of toleration that makes the living together of people with diverse identities, when this kind of toleration fails. And it's natural, therefore, that what happens when intolerance uh, uh, develops in its extreme forms is that we get uh, conflict and, and violence. Now, um, uh, this third, as I say, this is the third of a series of discussions, and this one's going to focus on, on a particular form of difference, a form of difference that we, we call racial difference, and I say it that way because this form of difference was, is a peculiar construct uh, invented largely in the Western world in the century since the beginning of the Atlantic slave trade, uh, which uh, was, of course, the historical process that created, among other things, um, the African-American community and the African-American identity. Now, the most obvious form of racial intolerance is racism, which at its worth is, worst is genocidal and violent, but which shades off into the kind of failures of consideration that many people believe help to explain why this country tolerates, for example, such appalling conditions for some of our poorest, poorest fellow citizens. But as my panelists will hope to persuade you tonight, this is by no means the only form of intolerance that race provides the occasion for. We're being asked to think about uh, new forms of intolerance. And I hope we'll provide, as well, some signposts towards tolerance as we practice the civil and rational deliberation about race that's a good deal less common than many of us I know would like. So I'm delighted, as I say, uh, both as a member of the Board of Penn and as the invited guest uh, to moderate this evening, to welcome you all to a discussion of uh, the new intolerance and race. And what we agreed we'd do is that I would turn now to the panel and ask them, first of all, to begin by saying something about what is new in the world of race and intolerance, what, if anything, is new in the world uh, of um, uh, race and intolerance uh, is new, and I'm going to start with um, um, I'm going to start on the on the left over there uh, with Glenn Lowry, uh, whom I'm going to mention one work by each person. So let me mention one by one from the inside out because I had the pleasure of uh, reviewing it and I've read it very carefully. Um, Glenn, what do you think? Uh, what is there to say about what is and isn't new about uh, intolerance as it relates to race in our society at the turn of the, the next millennium? Well, I, I think it's interesting. I, I would say, compared to 10 years ago, that on the whole, in my opinion, it's a more open environment, a more tolerant, that's the definition that we're using, less constraints, uh, more things are possible. Uh, that's not necessarily good, um, <laughs> because tolerance can be overrated, I think, but then we'll get to that, I'm sure. But take a book like The Bell Curve. I don't know that that would have been possible in the late 1980s, even though the political climate was in some ways more conservative with Reagan in the White House and so on. Uh, in fact, there's an interesting story very briefly. Uh, Charles Murray was a fellow at the Manhattan Institute here in New York City, and he was basically fired over the Bell Curve Project when he proposed to write this book. The Manhattan Institute said, we'll have nothing to do with it. We want to be players in the politics of the city over the long term, and this kind of argument will be tainting. Uh, I don't know that that same concern would arise today. Um, 
you know, black criminality. I mean, you can pick up respectable books, uh, Thernstrom and Thernstrom, published by Simon and Schuster, um, a widely reviewed and a well-respected uh, piece of work. And I'm not calling anyone a racist, but I will simply note that in the, ch in the chapter on crime, they say the words black crime are, you know, troublesome but hard to avoid, and they go on to use them a half dozen times in the chapter. And you might think that the construct black crime is, you know, problematic, perhaps would be excluded in a more sensitive, a less tolerant climate. Um, so, so what? The people who say, you know, blacks have to toe the line, they're just uh, kind of uh, flying in the, uh, against the, the, uh, the current of the time. I mean, they don't have that argument about racial loyalty constricting the uh, political expression of African Americans doesn't, isn't taken seriously in many quarters, I think, anymore, and it once was. My sense on the whole is that there's a good deal more tolerance, and we can have a discussion about whether or not it's in every way a good thing. Okay. Um, Talani, uh, who uh, I think of at the moment mostly as the author of the libretto of Amistad, the, the opera that was uh, premiered uh, last year in Chicago, so. That's my one work of Tulani's that I'd like to mention. Tulani, what do you think uh, about what's new and uh, what isn't new in the world of intolerance as it relates to race? Um, actually, I agree with Glenn. I think uh, the society's more tolerant of intolerance. <laughs> um, now, I think that uh, the society's more tolerant of exclusion. Um, I think uh, there's a, a kind of atmosphere that's um, bored with people who have politics. I, I think uh, people are supposed to, um, I, I should say that I th think people, it's more socially acceptable now to be ambivalent about all these things. I think there is an idea out there now though that in terms of race struggle, we're supposed to be heading towards this place called colorless, um, where um, those things which were supposedly fixed in the late 60s are truly fixed in a way, in such a way that um, white people have to struggle for tolerance um, and struggle against affirmative action and against um, different uh, adjustments that were made in society uh, in order to privilege blacks. I think this is part of the, the new language about race now that, um, in other words, uh, legislative agendas like affirmative action are now considered privileges. In other words, a lot of the language of 30 years ago has been flip-flopped so that words have their opposite meaning. And um, so that now I, I find even in my own work, even dealing with um, writing opera, uh, which is really uh, a European tradition that's hardly been integrated. Um, I am uh, reading in the paper today that it would be really great if my opera, which is about race, uh, would one day have the opportunity um, to be performed in such a way that the 11 Africans who took over the Amistad could be played by white people. Um, that, I think, is, is where um, the idea of harmony um, is placed and located now, where I uh, will become liberal enough to understand that um, there's a kind of universal quality to performers. I, uh, I'm gonna add two more things that I think I grew up in a culture where uh, white character was considered universal. And uh, white characters in novels that I was raised on were considered as what Toni Morrison calls unraced. That um, 
as she says so beautifully in playing, uh, playing in the dark, uh, we knew Eddie was white because nobody said so. <laughs> I think um, that's, that's the language that's being used now, that we must head towards a place where uh, we don't have to say who is what. Um, Lee, since we're going around the circle here, Lee Baker, who uh, teaches here and is the author of the forthcoming uh, From Savage to Negro, Anthropology and the Construction of Race. What's new? Well, I think um, one of the fundamental new forms of intolerance is the fact that simultaneously there is more tolerance and more intolerance. And those individuals and peoples and communities that caught the wave of industry, I mean, finance, service, information, and those who got the wave dumped on them from industry and manufacturing, when those jobs went overseas or just changed fundamentally, poor people are racialized in a way now that is intolerant, where the folks that are made the middle class took advantage of the booming economy or had their work be taken advantage of the booming economy. They're living in a very middle class, like Skip's uh, show the other day, which was interesting. We can have a discussion about that. Um, those folks who Henry Louis Gates was talking about aren't, aren't suffering the same sort of intolerance. The, but the people that are victimized by mandatory minimums, people that are getting thrown off welfare, people that are, can't find work even though there's a, what, 5% unemployment, those folks are, there is no tolerance for them. But in an interesting way, it's, it's still racism, but it's, their, it's seen as behavior. Because there's plenty of middle class black folks doing fine, oh, racism's gone. But somehow that kind of racialization of poverty eschews the structural concerns and it becomes their behavior and there's no tolerance. So go ahead, lock them up. It's great, great for the industry. And so I think that kind of class, new class dimension of racism kind of accentuates the tolerance for poor people and de-accentuates it for people that took advantage of the shifting economy. That okay. was made sense. Oh, no, <laughs> I, think, I think I got that. How about you, uh, Eric? Who's, who's uh, Eric Liu, whose book, *The Accidental Asian: Notes of a Native Speaker*, um, uh, I and his editor have read. Uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll be out in uh, in May. That's right. Um, what's new? Well, I think uh, I would echo a lot of the comments that uh, that we've already heard. In the first place, just about, I mean, the measure of the moment today, I think, is multiplicity, and. Simultaneously, as Lee says, you have more intolerance, you have more tolerance. As Glenn says, you have trend lines that are very encouraging in society and trend lines that are harder to identify, uh, that are more discouraging. Uh, and I think part of what's difficult about identifying intolerance, new or old, uh, is the fact that uh, uh, our race debates and the terminology for our race debates is, are fracturing in this kind of way. But I think what is uh, you know, certainly telling from the perspective of, say, the Asian American community, I mean, a lot of the intolerance that exists out there today is new, but not so new. And I think if you look at just the way that over the last year and a half, the, the so-called Asian money scandal has played out, and I can go into this more as our conversation unfolds, but the way that behavior, uh, the behavior of American citizens uh, of Asian descent has been racialized, the way the coverage of that matter uh, has been filtered uh, disproportionately through the lens of race, um, first of all, suggests a certain 
persistent intolerance in society today, but also has very deep historical resonance and echoes with the way that uh, Asians and Asian Americans have been viewed in the American imagination. And I think it leads me to kind of two things in answer to your question. I mean, the first is that <clears throat> what's new about intolerance in a lot of ways has to do with what's new about notions of American identity today, and that we live, you allude to the economic aspects of globalization, but I think certainly the cultural aspects of globalization, the kind of erosion of sovereignty, the dissolving of borders, uh, and, and certainly the rise of Asia in some grand schematic strategic sense, uh, stirs in the kind of undercurrents of our psyches in this country a certain anxiety. And it's anxiety about what it means to be an American, it's anxiety about where you draw the lines around this community, and it's anxiety that gets borne out every now and again in little blips like the Asian money scandal. But I think also what's new about intolerance today ultimately is that, particularly for someone who was born after all the movements in the 60s, what's striking to me is to see how much that uh, our ambitions seem to be limited today. That the most we can say and the most we can hope for in a conversation about race is to not have intolerance, <laughs> is to not be intolerant, is to not uh, be narrow or negative about race and identity. And I think the language of integration, the language of synthesis, the language of borrowing and mixing, the language of empathy, uh, which only 25 years ago was very much a very vital part of the rhetorical discourse, seems very quaint now and seems a little bit dated and seems a little bit funny. Uh, and I think that's something that's new, uh, and that's something that's new about the intolerance today. If, uh, if I think about that, that, that historic... Uh transition over the last 30 years. One thing that strikes me is that, um, and this relates to the question of, of whether integration or to the, the extent to which integration is still anybody's value, um, that, that color, consciousness, uh, uh, color blindness has moved as an ideal, it seems to me. That is, color blindness was a progressive, was a progressive ideal at one point. It was part of what underlay um, the, the um, the multiracial coalition of the civil rights movement, uh, even if uh, e even if there were complications and subtleties, the the, the basic uh, the basic picture was one of aiming for colorblindness. Now, colorblindness is often mobilized uh, in a way that looks anti-progressive, looks looks uh, to, to have moved across the spectrum. And I'm wondering whether that isn't something new. But I'm seeing Glenn uh, shaking his head a bit. So, well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, color. Colorblindness has always been used against something. That is to say, you know, when those people went from Columbia down to Mississippi in 1964, that was not a colorblind situation. No. That was a racialized situation. There was progressive things happening, okay? They were down there doing the Lord's work, if you will, but they were white. Everybody knew that they were white. Now, Martin Luther King in 1963 has a dream about, among other things, his four little children, but by the time in 1966 and 1967 he gets to Chicago, it's about something else. It's about second generation Polish stockyard working and truck driving immigrants not wanting their matchbox working class neighborhoods polluted by the fair housing advocacy that would have working class blacks living in their midst. There wasn't anything colorblind <coughs> in that. Um, the, the, so the colorblind trope the colorblind rhetoric, and I don't say this sarcastically, just as a matter of historical description, was an artifice 
used against an extant order of segregation and white privilege which was being radically attacked by this movement. Now, in our time, similarly, there's no mad rush to the hospital maternity wards to adopt these black babies who don't have 10% of African-American children don't live with their mother or their father in this country. There's no mad rush to adopt them by the new advocates of colorblindness who think race doesn't matter. They go to China, they go to Colombia and Venezuela uh, and like places to find children. They don't go to the inner city hospitals to find them. Now it's true, you have black social workers who don't wanna see black children adopted by whites. But what's also true is you have a lot of people who mouth colorblindness but don't live it in their lives because that's not the reality of our social situation here. And it's, a, it's again a trope that's being used against the claims of people who are affirmative action advocates or whatever. And however problematic those claims may be, I'm not saying those claims weren't blanket endorsement. There's something disingenuous about the idea that, you know, we have this society ongoing for centuries and then we get to a little thin sliver of time that's not a decade long and suddenly now the scales have fallen from everybody's eyes, we're colorblind and that becomes the defining uh, normative principle around which we're to organize our racial political discourse. Uh, that's just uh, not in one whole order. I think it has another function too, which is to um, remove the struggle off to another distance, to keep the horizon far rather than dealing with it now. To keep with your uh, Polish Chicagoans, um, I uh, was lucky enough to go to a Bulls game this fall when I was in <laughs> Chicago. And the city of Chicago stands at attention for Michael Jordan when he ins enters the room. And I am told that he's transcended color, that he has transcended his color, he's transcended race. And this could probably be said of the other god uh, or goddess of Chicago, um, Oprah Winfrey, that um, I think there's this notion that you can transcend race. There are venues where race is not necessary to be, it doesn't need to be discussed because blacks who represent having made a space for themselves in this society, and I guess we probably are also gonna say that about the people in Skip's film, they've transcended uh, this struggle, uh, which of course we all maintain, none of us have transcended. Michael Jordan probably would say he's not transcended race. But that again is also moving towards this notion of color blindness, colorlessness, where uh, race becomes unnecessary. It doesn't have to be dealt with. Well, that suggests, uh, I mean, another kind of uh, intolerance that I think uh, people might say that was new, which is uh, uh, just an intolerance for race discourse at yes. all. Mm -hmm. And uh, in particular, a tendency to, um, <coughs> to manifest unease or disquiet if race is brought up. And to also, I think, to put the onus for raising questions about race on, on people of color, on, on Hispanics and Asians and blacks, so that when they then bring it up, you, you call it playing the race card, or, you, you, or you, uh, you sort of shiver and look uncomfortable, and, and you, put the, you sort of leave the burden with them. And that seems to me, um, that seems to me something that, that is a feature of our situation which bears reflection. I mean, do you notice that sort of thing? Absolutely, I, I think um, it's, it's a value in the society um, to be in a room where everyone says, well, we don't need to discuss that here in this room. It seems to me uh, unique in this culture um, 
which is quite expert, actually, in com having discourse around race. We are more expert on it probably than anyone on the planet. Uh, we've committed armies to the discussion of race. So I, I think there's um, a notion um, in this country, though, that um, it has to be experienced personally in order for the conversation, for the vocabulary to be there. That in the literature of this country, when you read about people having transforming experiences where they realize racism or realize their cultural dependency on people um, with whom they've regard, they, whom they've regarded with racist eyes, it is the personal experience that's transforming. And to some extent, I find with my students that until they have the personal experience either of racism directed towards them or friends or seeing how it acts in society, that it is an abstract notion that uh, doesn't need to be discussed. Well, I was just going to mention one thing. I mean, and we were talking about this earlier, the um, uh, charge of racism. So if you had a discussion about <coughs> tolerance and race, one of the themes you would expect to come up would be the free use of the charge of racism. That's an instance of intolerance because what it does is it shuts down the discussion. You know, someone wants to talk about, I don't know, crime or welfare policy or whatever. And then someone else comes up and says, aha, you're a racist. And so people living in fear of being called a racist and so they don't tread on that particular subject and see that's intolerant because we're not having a broad discussion. Well, I think that problem um, did exist and maybe still does exist, but I think there's another kind of problem. I think that problem, the one I was just describing, uh, isn't any longer a centrally important problem in the topic of race intolerance. The other kind of problem is what I call playing the race card problem, which is that you see an instance of racism, like the following. I give you a real example from my life. I'm walking down the street, my colleague is walking past me, I recognize him and make a gesture. He keeps walking and he doesn't see me. Okay? He, didn't, he didn't notice that it was me. Okay, I was dressed a little shabbily. I had my jacket up. I was just another large, perhaps potentially threatening African-American male on the street, and he doesn't see those people. Now, okay, Glenn's got a chip on his shoulder. See, he's hypersensitive. He's going around looking for racists under every bush. So naturally, I never say anything to my colleague about him passing me on the street and not noticing me. Naturally, we never have a discussion about whether or not his way of seeing precludes the individualized, colorblind perception of personalities of individuals that he may encounter on the street. I noticed him. There were tons of white people walking <laughs> past me. I didn't pay attention to every one of them. This particular person was important to me, no more important to me than I thought I was to him, but somehow he didn't see me. Okay. Now, you see my point. My point is that to belabor this, to make this a topic of discussion with my friend would be to ruin our friendship. Because it would be to play the race card. It would be to exhibit a kind of sensitivity to make him uncomfortable. Okay? And uh, there's power in that. And uh, you know what I'm getting at here, uh, Irving Goffman, the late sociologist, I think, was very uh, clever in seeing how, you know, there's a kind of commonly accepted definition of the situation that we all want to kind of keep going in order to maintain the modus vivendi that permits us to get along, okay? And, you know, claims of racism from tenured academics who are moderate or even maybe a little right of center in their politics is really disquieting. It really is <laughs> dissonant. 
it upsets the definition. And people who go around, you know, farting in public, which is to say, disturbing, disturbing the consensus of, of uh, civility, such people are not tolerated. Well, I think, I mean, the one word that uh, I would definitely pick up on and what Glenn just said was power. There is power in there, and I think uh, that is part of what creates the, the, the sort of otherworldly sense of the conversations that the president's initiative has, has staged on race, uh, because they have been oftentimes candid, they have been fair-minded, they have been, you know, tolerant in spirit uh, in trying to get a whole range of views of people about the race question in America. But what makes it, what gives those conversations a sort of otherworldly quality is the absence of any notion of power in the conversations. I mean, there is, power is suffusing any notion of, not, not just any conversation, but any notion of whether we ought to have a conversation. That's why Glenn feels constrained about actually going up to this colleague and saying, hey, by the way, because it upsets the power balance, it upsets our notions of the, of the proper flow and course of power, and I think that, uh, you know, that is probably the greatest difficulty that any conversation on race, ours included, uh, has in, in being connected in some sense to the real world. I mean, I think, you know, in a lot of what uh, you've been saying, both you and Glenn, I mean, there's an interesting, I think, disjunction between what I see as at least two, two pendulums swinging in American life. I mean, there's one which is a great big pendulum that is moving at a glacial pace from less tolerant and less progressive to more tolerant and more progressive. And that, and maybe it's, hopefully it's not a pendulum in, in that hopefully it won't swing back the other way at some point. But there's a slow moving arm going in that direction. <coughs> Meanwhile, above that, and at, at the level of most people's political consciousness, there is the smaller and faster moving pendulum of political rhetoric. And this gets to what Glenn was talking about, and, and, and Tilani as well, about the ways in which the rhetoric of colorblindness has come to just within the short course of a generation uh, stand for and represent uh, an entirely different set of political ideologies uh, th than it did uh, you know, just a generation ago. And I think you know, every now and again, that little pendulum and that big pendulum are moving in the same direction. And the way we talk about race and the way that race exists in this country uh, are somewhat consonant. But I think we're at a moment right now where that's not so. And our language pendulum uh, is at a different place from the pendulum of actual social power in this country. Do you think, though, that um, uh, when people um, raise questions about when it's appropriate to discuss race and, and when they leave the burden of uh, raising questions about race to, to people of color, in, in some of the similar ways to the ways in which uh, questions about sexism are sort of left to women to, to bring up. Isn't, I mean, it's, it's one thing to, um, to remark upon the flows of power and, and, and the, the normalization of a particular uh, set of uh, arrangements. It's another to think about what you can actually do to shift that because uh, really, I mean, it seems to me that uh, if we think about what would be necessary for the kinds of small moments that Glenn was talking about to cease to be an important part of how we shape our relations with each other, uh, we do have to have conversations, we do have to fart in public, we do have to say, look, at some point you have to, maybe it can get back to your colleague by a roundabout route, I mean, <laughs> maybe you don't actually have to go up to him or her yourself, but it seems to me that until people um, 
raise these questions and think about them and think about moving their lives uh, in ways that change them, that we're stuck and uh, the big pendulum's never going to move uh, on in the direction that it ought to be going. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of it has to begin with, with political leadership. I mean, a lot, you know, a word that's been absent again thus far in our conversation is politics. And uh, I think, you know, within the constraints of, of electoral politics and his own ideology, the president has certainly done more than presidents in my memory have done to, to advance, the, to move the ball forward. But I think a lot of how we're ever going to get to a point, I, I mean, this is sort of a strange trickle-down notion, but I do believe ultimately uh, that if those who are in highly visible, highly public, and highly, in a cultural sense, central positions in our, in our society, set that tone, uh, that that, make, that begins to make a difference. I don't think, you know, I don't think we ought to have any illusions that that makes all the difference, but I think it certainly moves us in the right direction. And, and you know, that is, I suppose, the plus side of, of the president's uh, uh, initiative. I think part of the problem, though, is that um, the notion of, of the dream or the vision of what we were struggling for was set by a largely black and white struggle that happened first in the South and then in a somewhat different fashion in the North and the West uh, some years ago. And it, the, the language of that struggle is really not sufficient at this moment to address the complexities of the present. And there hasn't been anything else to sort of fill that void, uh, a more complicated vision. Um, the vision that um, Martin Luther King had, uh, that Glenn mentioned, actually required a great deal of consensus. It required, uh, black people may have felt, looking in retrospect, that we, we were be at one behind his dream as one group that that's in that dream. Um, our consensus is no longer there. We have a very much more complicated political reality now, and maybe should. Um, so for me, uh, as I, I look into the future, I, I find a lot of this confusion, um, both the linguistic confusion and the behavioral confusion, having to do with um, a kind of inadequate, uh, old-fashioned um, mindset and way of looking at what is actually kind of a much more complicated reality. But, but again, it's, I mean, it's quite interesting on, on that very point within the, the commission that the president has assembled uh, to talk about race. You, you have effectively this very debate where uh, Angela Oh, who is Korean-American, uh, early on in the proceedings put forth the proposition that the race question in America is not simply black and white, but that it is a, a kind of a complex uh, paradigm, uh, which seemed at the time to be not particularly a controversial point of view and not particularly meant to be, I think, all that provocative, just more from her perspective a statement of social reality. But uh, John Hope Franklin, the chairman of the commission, really responded sharply uh, in reaction to that and said, no, that's, I mean, of course, yes, uh, there, there are, there, there is more uh, to the scheme of color in America than black and white. But as to the scheme of race and the, and the, and the scheme of morality and the scheme of power alignments that flow from race, uh, in his view, it was still very much a black and white issue. And uh, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth, I'm not uh, wholly in disagreement with John Hope Franklin about that. I think that on one level, it's certainly important for us in this country to recognize that old language and the old lexicon is increasingly uh, insufficient and inadequate. But uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you talk about race in this country, again, in a political sense, you only have so much moral capital to spend. Mm -hmm. And 
you have to begin to think about what sorts of interactions, conflicts, issues um, make the most sense to give most of our moral attention to. And I think in that sense, there's something that John Hope Franklin is getting at that says that yes, even as we be, do become a more multiracial country, there are certain paradigms of race and racialization uh, that have deeper and more kind of pernicious, uh, deeper roots and more pernicious consequences and that we ought to pay particular attention to those. Well, if I could give an example of a complicated reality and a black-white um, solution that's not a solution. I, I had a student some years ago um, who was a South Asian who uh, in her writing uh, positioned, positioned herself as a black American. Uh, she described herself as black and um, she had come here uh, only a few years earlier. In her writing, she refused to use the I pronoun. She always wrote in the second person, which to me as her teacher was a problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in my conversations about her, she said um, this very complicated reality that she lived every day was not acceptable as a norm. So to say I and mean black South Asian American female was to her not an acceptable norm. She thought if she said you, that you would put yourself in that that place. For me, uh, in the psyche of young Americans like this young woman, um, there's a complicated reality where the black-white model is not um, sufficient and it's not a solution because she, if she took black as the pronoun, she'd have a similar problem. <laughs> um, and it, it's not, uh, it's not going to work. Second example, uh, at the same time I encountered this student, I was working on a show downtown at the public. Um, we had a white director, a black playwright, and the first uh, monologue of the play was given by a black female. The second monologue of the play was given by a, a Jewish female, and the third monologue of the play was given by a black male. And the director kept insisting, we must insert a white person closer to the front of the piece. And I, I said, why? And they, he said, well, so that the audience will have someone to identify with. I said, you mean someone white? And he said, yes. And I said, well, okay, but um, our second um, person there is a white woman. He said, no, she's Jewish. I mean a white, white person. <laughs> okay, wow. now, I, I could tell you this got to be a complicated discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and some intolerance arose. Um, but for me, um, I, it was very instructive because I said as a black American growing up in this country, I had to learn to identify with white fictional characters and white real characters in order to live. I had to, uh, many of my male peers, identify with John Wayne uh, while perhaps they didn't appreciate the real person quite as much. But they identified with the characters he played and I said, People who come into a darkened room must be able to identify with whoever's on the stage. That's the premise of me doing theater. But um, he said, no, audiences identify with whoever they're like. Um, this, I think, is fallacious. But it does point to uh, the way in which we've come to think about each being in our own, in our own group in such a way that it makes us intolerant. Uh, after empowering ourselves by delving into our, our ethnicities in the 60s and 70s, to some extent, we have now come to this point where we have got to be able to say, I allow that person to speak first, this person to speak second, and I will be heard, but I, I can be in that room and identify with each of those complexities. 
I wonder, just listening to your discussion, I wonder if, if um, one of the problems isn't that, uh, one of the political problems uh, is that uh, complexity is hard to deal with in, in our kind of politics. And that what we've been saying, what you've been saying, is that um, we need to have a more nuanced sense of when, um, of, of which, which demands in the name of race are legitimate and which ones aren't. Uh, we, we want race not to be uh, simply made to disappear, but on the other hand, we understand that there are kinds of attention to race that are inappropriate. There are the old forms of racism that we reject. And that's harder to, that's harder to spell out, especially in a slogan, uh, than uh, to say, okay, attention to race produced racism, that was bad, so let's forget about race altogether, which is the sort of, uh, that, that, that's, that's what leads to colorblindness as a, as a slogan. And if I may just sort of turn to another set of questions about race and intolerance here, which have to do with the policing of identities by communities themselves. Um, I mean, I wonder whether there isn't something new and old about the ways in which um, uh, uh, people, especially people who are identified as sort of spokespeople for various uh, racial and ethnic groups, are uh, required to toe <laughs> lines in their public expression and sometimes in their relatively private expression as well uh, in ways that uh, look like a form of intolerance. I know uh, you've thought a lot about this. Um, yeah, yeah, I have, but I've also as a theoretical matter. I've also thought about the other question that, <laughs> if I could, uh, sure, sure, because the subject you raise is very important and <clears throat> deserves to be discussed. But I wanted to just weigh in a bit on this Angela O. John Hope Franklin uh -huh. business because I, uh, one of the reasons I'm very interested in um, Eric Liu's project, and everyone should read the Accidental Asian, uh, his book that'll be out in May, uh, is this racialization of the Asian. This this creation of, which is one of the things that you have some interesting things to say about, creation of a group. I mean, you have people from uh, the Philippines, you have Japanese immigrants of many generations, you have in the post-1965 uh, liberalized immigration environment a large influx of people from uh, various places in Korea <coughs> and China and other places. So um, no doubt the complexity, the demographic complexity of American society at the end of the 20th century. But look at what else you've got. You've got a politics of um, interest group claiming, which is working against the backdrop of regulatory apparatus created in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s to deal with the race problem, but rewarding the uh, group identity-based claims that are racial in nature. In other words, if we just simply said we had ethnic Americans who happened to come from the continent of Asia and we didn't put race in it, well, you don't get very far on your affirmative action claims or whatever it might be, so you've got that. You've got white reactionaries who want to point out that these people over here in these ghettos who haven't taken advantage of the new opportunities that have been opened in the last 20 years are not as good as those people over there in those ghettos who have done, both neither of whom are white, so you see we've got it all fixed. All that's a part of this so when John Hope Franklin says to Angela O, oh, uh, no, 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 you can't make the black-white thing just a part of something else. See, he's saying something, I think, that warrants a deeper consideration than just being dismissed as, a, you know, he has an old model. He was born before 1950. He doesn't understand what the new America is about. Um, and, uh, you know, look at the intermarriage statistic. I mean, I think this is really interesting among young, Asian-American women are marrying white men at more than 50% rate. Now, if that was happening with black women, and I'm not advocating anything here, we would be talking about an entirely different social reality. Uh, and yet the ability to sustain that uh, 
uh, difference to, to, to keep credible that primary claim that comes out of African American and American history on behalf of the race of people who have been history's losers here in uh, some important respects. The ability to maintain the legitimacy of that claim is what's at stake here. So we really do, I mean, you know, I'm all for nuanced philosophy, you know, that tries to lay out, you know, the sort of eth ethical and the kind of, uh, you know, the sort of theoretical template that we can make these distinctions. Uh, but I'm also for a nuanced politics, which I don't see, uh, in which these uh, sorting of claims could be done in a way that would really carry weight in the political arena. I think the forces militate against that kind of nuance policy. They push us off to extreme camps of one kind or another. So you get Afrocentric, rabble-rousing claims of, you know, black now, black forever that are easily likened to segregation now, segregation forever. Uh, and then you get a kind of uh, indifference, a kind of I'm okay, Jack, screw you, uh, self-satisfaction by people who sit back and say, what, me worry, race? Yeah, so. I, think, I think it is important to understand that we kind of, we do need a new language. In some respects, and I've got tremendous respect for John Hope Franklin, but it seems that you've got a bunch of NASA scientists up there speaking as if the world is still flat, and that we really <laughs> are beyond this in terms of the history and our technologies and, and, and whatever metaphor is, is useful, and that we have to hold on to those distinctions but we have to be very cognizant that there is a number of things at play. Racial formation is different than racism. Race as a social construct where I think, which is important kind of going back to what you were saying, that white privilege is one of the most salient features in the kind of racial formation of whiteness. I think, you know, Rodiger's work and Hartigan's work and Frankenberg's work is very, very important in this, that they're kind of naming whiteness, although there could be a pernicious side to that, but I think those three scholars in particular are doing a lot of work in terms of identifying, you know, how the whole white privilege is articulated in a variety of different contexts. And as these, we need those nuanced new vocabularies, but however you like it, it's Rehnquist, the Christian Coalition, Newt Gingrich, all the Southern, I mean, Zell Miller's a little bit different, but it, Zell Miller sponsored the uh, rolling back the majority minority rate congressional districts. Um, and that those kind of simple, those are real politics that have really, that the old, old let's look at the world flat actually helps in terms of mobilizing political, um, mobilizing the politics to make sure that the strides of a, the civil rights movement have don't go backwards. So it's a, it's 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 difficult that we need this language, especially in the university setting, especially in um, more sophisticated contexts. I don't want to sound elitist, but that it needs to be addressed. But on the other hand, we need to hold on to some of these old ones because that's how people think about these things. When you go out there to Harlem, they ain't thinking about the nuances, white privilege, they know what white privilege is <laughs> in many respects. So I don't know, it's, um, but I do think we do need new language and we've gotta be forthwith, but we can't get over sophisticated and say race doesn't matter, let's talk about these nuances because in everyday life people are identified in one way and they identify another. And that's well, I, another I think important a way, distinction. I, I think absolutely, there, there, there's a way though to have language that is both new and not necessarily so complicated as to be incomprehensible. I mean, it would be, amazing and refreshing, I think, if somebody on, say, the President's Race Commission would utter the statement that the race problem in America is whiteness. Mm -hmm. 
you know, mm -hmm. is our notions of whiteness, is the notion that this is the baseline around which all else is built. Uh, that, uh, and moreover, that whiteness is not something that is static, but, you know, much to the, probably to the detriment of a lot of people, but, you know, it's a very mixed record, is something which, which morphs. Uh, and I think uh, getting to what Glenn was saying about the way in which the Asian American community has become defined as a community uh, has something to do with the fact, yeah, that we live in a culture today that rewards people spanning together and, 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 and sticking together, but it has a lot more to do, in a sense, with the hidden and baseline ideologies of whiteness that suffuse any interaction with the world if you, if you happen to be Asian American. Now, that's not to say that that project of building a pan-ethnic uh, multi-racial, multi-ethnic Asian identity is sustainable over the long term. But I think we do have to be more clear when we're talking about race about where that comes from. You know, it gets back to the same way in which Talani is talking about how the language of today is in a sense the mirror image of the language of a generation ago. Uh, you know, when you talk about racial formation, you are talking about a chicken and egg process. And right now, the majority insists that the chicken comes first. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people who would insist, no, the egg comes first. Mm -hmm. well, Lee made an interesting point earlier, too, about um, race being different from culture. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit, because I think in some ways on the legislative end of it, race um, needs to be regarded as race, um, but we have come to view it as a sort of uh, bringing culture with it, so that um, sometimes within communities we have expectations of what um, Japanese American means or what black means that if we make a spot for somebody, we're expecting them to bring their culture along with them. <laughs> and in the colorblind, the new colorblind reality, it's quite the opposite. I believe um, you mentioned uh, that the University of California now wants to have applications that don't have names. Um, they are also... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you weren't kidding, right? Inform them that you weren't kidding, and I'm not making this <laughs> up. Um, that is to say, um, the culture those people may bring with them, which of course we will not police them and make them bring with them, hmm. is not valued um, in the setting of the in the, the vision of the university. So it's an interesting thing that I saw. Uh, maybe Lee, you could. Well, I think this is a fundamental problem with our new language, and I don't think it's a new problem. I think people have been grappling with these distinctions for a, a long time now. But whether it's students, whether it's the President Commission, whether it's um, a discussion like this, there's a real conflation between race and culture that plays out in a variety of different ways. But I think people just have to be cognizant that these are different issues at one level, modalities at another would be, mm -hmm. I think, a, a good word. Mm -hmm. And they have different histories. And especially, especially um, in terms of this, I think Du Bois's notion of a veil is kind of helpful here, but I think maybe an anecdotally, one, one of the ways to explain this is that when Abner Luima got beat. I mean, he's, most people would see him as a hardworking ethnic immigrant coming to this country to want, wanting his American dream. Fair enough. He's an ethnic immigrant. He's got an ethnicity, a language, a culture. He was going to, but, which is, I'm sure, the most salient part of his identity. However, when the police force sodomized and beat him and, 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 and uh, you know, mutilated his body, 
I don't think they were seeing Abner Luima as an ethnic immigrant, multicultural, colorblind. <laughs> they saw him as a black man. That's like he was a nigger. Nigger, right? Exactly. Um, Rodney King. I mean, a number of these things. And so I think it's important when we wade in and analyze mm -hmm. to step back and say, okay, is this the imposition of a racial category, which is one thing, or is it ethnic? identity, which is another. And they get thrown together, whether it's policy, whether it's uh, statements of purpose. I'm admitting graduate students now, and that be, and people get that all confused. Hmm. It's like, you're going to be an anthropologist? No, but that's a different issue. But it's interesting how people, in real life, people do conflate them, because racial identity is important. But understanding how those work together, I think, can help us move forward. Well, it's interesting, though, because if you start to pull apart this double helix of, of race and culture. I mean, it, it, does, it has implications which uh, are somewhat unpredictable in a way. You know, from, from a progressive point of view, they, they, there may be consequences which you may not like politically. I mean, when you, again, within the Asian American community, if you are to pull apart the idea of race and culture, uh, you are, in a sense, basically pulling the center out of what is what this Asian American project is. I mean, the, the idea, you know, the Asian American identity, as it's been developed and constructed over the last generation, uh, has had to be, you know, it's been an act of creation. It's been an, an, an act of kind of uh, invention. And a lot of the content that's been poured into that vessel, which began fairly empty, has had to be a cultural content. And a lot of it has to do actually with kind of pop cultural content. Mm -hmm. um, and that, in a, you know, in a very strong way, combined with history, is what defines this identity. But if you reach a point where you start to acknowledge, I mean, not just consider, but acknowledge that race and culture are separate things, that it's fully possible for someone in this room who is of white phenotype to be far more culturally Asian than I am, then that has interesting implications for what this group means in politics and what, how you draw the lines around this group. But I think this gets back to the question that, that, uh, that I was sort of beginning to try and persuade Glenn to start talking about. Because uh, if really what's at stake in a lot of the policing of racial identities is the, is the claim, which, which in a way flows from the conflation of the two, that if you are a black person, there are ways which you ought to think and behave. That is, there's some culture that goes with that. And ditto now for Asian American, though in the Asian American case, we're seeing it at an earlier stage in the historical process, so the, as it were, artificiality of it may be more obvious to us, but the fact is we have to remember that this is a process that, um, that black people went through in the New World, though they went through it a long time ago, because they came from a very diverse range of cultures in Africa, and they were shaped in the crucible of slavery and racism into some kind of identity. Now, that identity now has a history of its own, but at the beginning, it was very much, as it were, shaped in the sort of way that, that this pan-Asian identity is being shaped in the but country now. But far, far, I mean, an exponential degree greater oh, yes. level of duress. I and mean, yes. I think that's what also makes, and that makes the Asian American too. project interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and, and also, I think, with the possibility of, tr with a kind of, range of options, the possibility, I think, I mean, you couldn't opt out of being an African when, if you were a slave in the New World. You couldn't say, well, no, I'd rather be one of them. Uh, but we now have a situation, I think it is true that Asian Americans are, sometimes at least, except in the moments when they, they bump up against the racists, uh, or, or the sort of structural racism, or when they're reminded by coverage in the press that uh, at least some people, some of the time, are thinking of them as somehow like that guy whose name is 
some Chinese name who's doing something bad in the White House. Uh, there's, there's also a sort of invitation to say, well, if you don't want to be Chinese, be, you know, be American, speak like us, uh, come to our church. But there again is the question of multiplicity. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's very difficult and even dangerous to generalize about even, you know, even something in the larger national scheme of things as small as the Asian American community. There are Asian Americans, uh, and I'm probably more among this group than, than not, who have a sense of options, ethnic options. But there are plenty of Asian Americans who don't. And even those who do, like myself, get rude awakenings, not only in personal day-to-day -day interactions, but again, getting back to the money scandal and the kind of reminder of what lays beneath, you know, just one or two layers uh, beneath the conscious mind uh, in terms of how Americans define us and how Americans define them. Uh, well, one, okay. I was just going to mm -hmm. introduce a distinction here that I think might be useful between the, the, the uh, liberty claim the claim of autonomy at the level of the individual person about life projects. And uh, as, you know, freedom-loving people, we will all here affirm the goodness of the openness of that choice, and we will chafe at the empirically observable phenomenon of communities uh, acting against people exercising those choices. There are ways of being black. You're not performing along those ways. You're not really black. We're going to shun you. We're going to, you know, whatever. Um, and, and so a problem is created for liberty, for freedom at the, at the personal level. Um, then the distinction I want to make is as between that on the one hand and the question of um, solidarity, of collective action of, um, it could be political action, it could be, uh, you know, sort of cultural action. I mean, trying to define, you know, the, to exert influence over the definition of the, of, of the problem or the situation in society as a whole. Uh, now, I'll give the example of Brazilian society. I'm not an expert. There may be, maybe you know more Lee than I do, but my impression in reading about race in Brazil is that the relative openness and the relatively sort of refined gradations of raciality, of sort of mulattoism, or whatever the right term would be, permits people to choose to sort of opt out of the, uh, you know, most stigmatized, if you will, the lowest caste on the racial system, and through selective intermarrying and skin color, identity, and social class dynamics, sort of move up. You know, you can move up over the generations and you can be less black and you can maybe even almost become white. Now, we would want to celebrate that being good liberals. We would want to see in that the exercise of choice, options available to people to map out life projects and to fulfill themselves. But politically, there's something deeply reactionary about that dynamic, about the openness of that system foreclosing the possibility of collective claims being made over and against a, you know, hegemonic, racist, white structure of power because the well-endowed, you know, um, uh, potentially uh, successful sort of uh, upper strata of the darker peoples can always opt, they can always move, they can always get away. So I, this is the thing that needs to be reconciled. You can't do this without some kind of politics. I mean, you know, you can't just do this at the level of individual autonomy. If your philosophy encompasses nothing more than persons making choices and the liberty of those persons, you'll never be able to even pose the question of the trade-off between those two 
uh, ideals, the ideal of autonomy on the one hand, and the, and the capacity to address systemic forces that are, uh, that are ethically problematic and that need to have mobilization of people acting collectively in order to, to be corrected. But if we, uh, I, mean, I think that that's a very important distinction and the, the claim of, uh, but it seems to me that it is important that the claim of autonomy, the claim to, of the value of people making their own way, making their own lives, should include as one of the ways in which you make your life the possibility, in fact, even perhaps uh, identify as, as one highly desirable form of choice, uh, the making of the choice to be a person who is in solidarity with some group or other. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the, the part of the problem with the sort of classical liberal formulation, and you know, shouldn't spend too much time doing this philosophical stuff, but uh, <laughs> it seems to me one of the problems with the classical philosophical formulation is that it, 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 it opposes autonomy and solidarity too sharply. That for, for many of us, who we are has a lot to do with who we're in solidarity with, and we choose that, we opt for that. That's part of our self-chosen project. But, but here would be my point. Who you should be yes. should be that. See, so the question is not that you can choose that. The yeah. question is whether or not I can cajole you to choose that, whether or not I can judge you for not having chosen right. it, whether I can elaborate a kind of uh, uh, you know, system of social sanction of your being in good standing as a mm -hmm. whatever it is mm -hmm. we're talking about, mm -hmm. so that when you do not choose to be in solidarity with the struggle, we can out you. Yes. Well, you, there's you also say. the question of choice within context. I mean, there may be in Brazil just a, a far greater range of ethnic options, but it all happens within a continuum that's still, in which white is still right, you know, and whiter is the better. Right. You know, and I think, what, you know, in a sense, Brazil is, a, yeah, it's very much Glenn's point. I mean, I think Brazil is a very cautionary yeah. lesson for this country as we start talking in kind of vague terms about what the 21st century is going to bring and intermarriage and, and demographic shifts and the rest. I mean, Brazil reminds us that you can have racism without really having race in a clear, clearly defined sense. That you can Not in the way we well, have it anyway. Exactly. I, I think there are disputes about the, there are disputes about how we should describe Brazil. And I know Tulani, <laughs> you, 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 okay. let's have I'm that dispute. I'm going to say we are a cautionary tale for Brazil. Um, <laughs> I think we've done that. We didn't have names, mestizo and, and uh, mulatto necessarily um, broadcast throughout the culture as widely, but um, we, we have had that experience. And their um, movement of solidarity is characterized by a kind of cultural nationalism that we have also experienced in each of our communities okay. here. Um, what, which brings me to why I raised the question of race being different from culture. Um, one of the things that sort of puzzles me now, and I have no answers about this, but I observe now that African-American culture, for instance, is widely disseminated around the world. And it hasn't necessarily done what we thought it was going to do, which was to raise tolerance. Um, <laughs> I think we had the notion in cultural nationalism in the 70s that if we could share our cultures, people would greet our bodies in a way that didn't need such legislation and enforcement. That has proved to be absolutely not true. Um, we have disseminated our culture and more, uh, more now than ever, people um, such as our students can partake of different cultures without dealing with the bodies mm -hmm. that go with it um, from anywhere in the world and yet we're uh, sitting here discussing um, the new intolerance. Um, there's still um, a resistance around race which um, has actually 
sustained itself, has persisted uh, in an atmosphere of great cultural tolerance, great but cultural if, education. If, if that, if that uh, analysis of the 60s and 70s is wrong, if, if uh, cultural exchange and uh, the celebration of diversity uh, that we've, um, many of us have, have uh, endorsed hasn't done it, uh, this is turning, <coughs> before we turn to the audience, let's try and turn a little bit in a, in a hopeful direction. Uh, what sorts of things, what sorts of things do we propose, uh, do we think would uh, make well, these new shifts uh, yeah, away from the new forms of intolerance? I am exaggerating. I think it has helped and it's been good and it's great and all that. <laughs> I'm just saying that... It's not the um, end of it. Because, no, because all the other things we were talking about, like the economic fibers of our communities were taken away during this time that the culture was you know, mm -hmm. being right. handed across the country through every mechanism and technology available, um, it has not served the creators of that culture to preserve their, their way of life, even their lives. So uh, there is a tension there that interests me, mm. that's all. No, I, I wasn't, uh, I, mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that the, the point is right that, that to the extent which we surely should admit that there has been a significant shift in the degree to which uh, straightforward expressions of uh, racial in, uh, racism are accepted. I mean, uh, again, we have to remember that 30 years ago at a campus like this, it would have been perfectly routine for people to say those sorts of things and that on the whole people wouldn't have minded very much about it, wouldn't have cost them very much, and now it does cost. And part of that is connected with, surely, with the, with these, these, the movement for diversity, with multiculturalism, um, the good multiculturalism, if I may put it that way, and, um, and with, with cultural celebration. So I, I don't think anybody here wants to deny that that's done some good. But the fact is, I think there was the, looking back now, perhaps rather naive notion that if you combined um, uh, anti-discrimination legislation mm -hmm. with a bit of um, a bit of cultural exchange and you know Kwanzaa uh, and so on. So uh, that would that would that would be, that's all we need. Now the, uh, it's clear that that hasn't worked, and, and maybe you might want to say, well, we you know we we live in too short a time frame. We must remember that that happened very recently. Some of us were alive when it happened, and uh, there's, there's there's you know there's there's time. But are there other things? Are there other things that you think we ought to be trying? I mean, maybe you don't feel that uh, obliged to have a view about that, but if you, if you have any views about it, I'd be interested I to... That, I think that part of the difficulty, and again, I don't mean to, to be overly critical of, of the president's initiative on race, but I think part of the difficulty, or of this exercise, in fact, part of the difficulty is that conversation has its real limits. I mean, even conversation at its most candid and, and probing has its real limits, because at the end of the day, we, we disperse and we, and we move out. Now, consciousness may be shifted slightly here and there, and things might be tweaked. But I think, to me, what is missing in American life right now uh, is not only spaces where people can have conversations about race, but where people can actually do things uh, across lines of race. You know, I mean, we live, you know, I, I, again, I've not known the existence of the draft or the existence of something like the WPA or existence of, you know, kind of mass institutions that brought people from different walks of life together. Now, again, granted, you know, you don't need to remind me about the history of the draft and the WPA and how largely white they were, but there's no reason why models like that, kind of institutions, whether it's government or other, other parts of society that put forth these institutions that really try to get people to, together to do something, to work, where talking about race and thinking about race is, is a byproduct 
kind of incidental to their working together on some other predefined objective. You know, I think that is what is missing. I mean, that's part of what pains me about the, uh, the decline of the public school. You know, mm-hmm. it's but not so much just the quality of education, but the space, the social space right. that's disappearing. But there's an absence of um, public space, particularly in poor and black communities, period. <clears throat> it is one of the reasons we aren't as organized as we used to be. Um, the, the public gathering space in Brooklyn, where I live, is, is non-existent. Um, people, you could see the biggest crowd you want to see at the grocery store. You'd have to organize there. And I'm not making <laughs> fun of that. I'm saying that's the reality. That's where you'd have to start organizing um, if you even wanted to give um, a four-block-wide event. Um, there's uh, not the gathering spaces. There are not the gathering spaces that uh, we once had. And this is true throughout the country. That gathering space is, in some ways, the mall now. But um, where we could be together, either across race lines or in uh, communities that are under stress, um, that has been probably had a great effect. I don't know if it's ever been studied, but um, a great effect on this lack of discourse. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to add that, you know, there are fundamentals here. I mean, you know, you got. <clears throat> A million and a half people in prison. On you know, we we spend fifty billion dollars a year in the states, incarcerating people. Um, nothing goes on in there that is constructive, as far as I can tell. And the very idea of rehabilitation is a laughing stock in public policy circles. I mean, rehabilitate what? So you know, the notion that you would spend any money to try <laughs> to take that population, which is violating the laws. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, sort of help people become a part, a productive part of society, or that you would spend, uh, you know, $50 billion a year, which is not a lot of money in an $8 trillion economy, on early childhood education. So that instead of standing back, pointing at these test scores, you know, and wagging your finger and saying, you people, why don't you measure up? You do something about the cognitive development of these youngsters at a time when it could really make a difference in their lives. Uh, you know, and make that a national campaign because the, you know, we don't have a single individual to waste. I'm sure a politician said that somewhere. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> you might have less uh, heat in the racial dialogue if there were fewer objective social facts of disparity across racial lines on the ground. And it's not as if there's no hope that uh, concerted effort through instruments of government and policy uh, can do something about that. No, the history does not leave, you know, it's not littered with so many success stories that we've just, you know, we're just totally confident that we can solve all these problems. But my God, we, we, we can't stop trying to solve mm. these problems. These are not hum- tremendous commitments of resources that I'm talking about, but there, there lacks uh, a will. So, you know, I'm pessimistic that with, without a shift in uh, the way in which we think about the relation between collective responsibility and, and the plight of these people at the margin, uh, that we can really defuse the racial tension. I mean, you know, you're locking up in many cities in this country one quarter of young black men on a given day are under lock and key. Uh, so, and, and that fuels a whole lot of other stuff. It fuels a whole lot of stereotypes. I mean, I, one last point. Social Security Act of 1935, landmark piece of legislation that sets up the welfare state in the United States. Major event of the 20th century in the Western democracies is the creation of a consensus, a political consensus, that there should be a commitment through the instrument of the state to, to protect people and, and so forth and against unemployment and so on and so on. Only part 
of that commandment. I mean, most of it is enshrined. We all think it's great. Medicare is great. Uh, that's 1965, you know, Social Security is great. Aid to families with dependent children. A commitment from the government to take care of mothers and children who cannot take care of themselves. That's the only part of that edifice that has been rolled back. Now, did welfare need fixing? Perhaps. Did we need to end a commitment to take care of indigent women and children in the society? I don't see that. Did race have something to do with that? Absolutely. I just can't believe I'm going to be echoing you. That's actually quite <laughs> No, I, I agree 100%. And I think what's important is that we do understand that it does take government initiative. It's very interesting. We're talking about ideas of liberty and freedom. But justice is the only virtue of democracy that takes government work. Everything else takes the government to defend one's liberty, to defend one's freedom. But justice is the thing that takes work in terms of the wheels of justice. And it's important that the government take an active role. I'm not trying to sound like a tax and spend liberal here, but I think the government needs to take an active role to make sure that these disparities are dealt with. And then, in terms of, especially on the economic disparities, the gender disparities, the racial disparities, the, and that it takes an active role in that. And I think then these problems will not necessarily go away, but will be mitigated. And I do think it, it does take leadership. But until we get the kind of fracturous racial politics that dogs democracy in so many ways, and so many times these party politics, when you have Pete Wilson being an affirmer of affirmative action to running to try to destroy it, I think these are emblematic that the racial politics are so much part and parcel of party politics, it's going to be a long time that the federal government is going to act and kind of shoulder the, the mantle of leadership with regard to executing this justice. Can I just make a point about the, par the party politics question? I mean, I think that there certainly is cause for pessimism broadly about whether the kinds of will that Glenn is saying is absent in our politics can be found. I think there's certainly cause for pessimism. But I think in a sense right now, uh, those who would count themselves, I suppose, progressive, uh, speaking of broad, vague labels, but those who would count themselves as progressive, I think, have, have an interesting opportunity. I mean, there, there's, you know, the broader context in the political debate today is that opponents of affirmative action have the upper hand, that those on the left are on the defensive, are moving backwards. And I think that that is certainly true, and that's the way the direction of motion is right now. But I think if you actually apply a little bit of jujitsu to the politics of it, there is a real opportunity for those on the left to kind of take the advance of the right in attacking affirmative action, flipping it over into, well, if you want to knock down affirmative action, let's put your money where your mouth is on ensuring that early in the pipeline the commitments are made at early childhood education and making sure that the inequities between, certain, you know, just among public school districts uh, uh, are leveled out uh, and some of these things are addressed. I think that as a moral matter, when you take a look at what the American electorate is kind of willing to tolerate uh, in politics, uh, I think actually, although there, is ground, there are grounds for pessimism, there is a moment of opportunity where the left can kind of re-seize, at least for a moment, uh, the moral high ground in pushing for these kinds of commitments. But you might think that, I, I agree with that, and I, but I'd, I'd like to just take it one step further. Uh, it seems to me that since um, the, uh, the assault on affirmative action is carried out in the name of a principle of non-discrimination, it would be nice to see the government actively pursue 
simply maintaining the standards of non-discrimination that we're supposed to have in this country. And the fact is, we have massive discrimination in housing. We have massive discrimination in the allocation of all sorts of resources. And I would trade, I would, I would give up affirmative action for a government that actually went out there right. and did real, did real uh, in enforcement of anti-discrimination laws, which we don't have. And I think Can you that imagine again, if we put foreign aid in that pot too? So African countries got as much as these European and Middle Eastern countries? <laughs> I mean, if we want to go colorblind. <laughs> well, <laughs> now that we've all gone too far, let's uh, invite the audience uh, into this discussion. And uh, as I said, if you'd like to come up to the microphone and, um, and make a little speech or ask a question, that would be great. And uh, that will make it easier for me uh, but if you can't move for some reason, just uh, try and uh, wave your hand and uh, get my attention and I'll interrupt the flow of people at the microphone and try and um, let you join in the conversation. Ma'am. Yes, hi. Um, this is a bit more of a, of a comment than a question, but um, while we know that all racial constructs are in fact constructs and not biological realities, um, I would have to agree that with, with Eric Liu when he said that maybe we should say that the problem, the race problem is whiteness. And the reason why I say this is um, from what I can uh, ascertain, when we're, talk when, when we're looking at colorblindness, it only really pertains to people of color. You know, uh, um, <laughs> you know uh, Nelson Mandela is the president of a non-racial South, South Africa uh, you know, Oprah Winfrey and, and Michael Jordan have transcended race, um, you know, in discussing where human beings first, um, you know, became, I guess, sort of appeared on the face of the earth. You know, it doesn't matter that it's Africa because they're not black because black doesn't exist. And so it's sort of like working, uh, dismantling color, however much a construct it might be, only seems to be working uh, to better the position of the quote-unquote non-colored. <laughs> so that's just my comment. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sir? Unless anybody wanted to... Well, I was going to say, you yes. know, uh, just sort of bridging your comment with what we were talking about before, um, I think our communities were taken apart in a very, very holistic way uh, during Reagan and Bush. Um, and that is to say, um, nowadays we face a problem where we had breakfast programs and um, early um, childhood emphasis in the 70s. We now face um, a, a population of children who need, um, who have been almost prevented from being socialized by, a dis by um, the social network being destroyed, starting with the family. So uh, we're looking at a kid who needs um, shots who needs socialization, who needs a hug, I mean, the, and who needs uh, early childhood education at the same time. And um, I think one of the things we're talking about is rebuilding community. If the first phase of that destruction was taking apart the legislation that was passed 30 years, and the second part was taking apart the communities, taking away blackness or your ethnicity or your notion of of its virtues um, is simply the last straw to making you a colorless, impoverished, disenfranchised non-person in the society. So um, those things to me, you know, start um, with maybe building communities again, and maybe they're not gonna look exactly like they looked before. Um, there was, there were a number of points which um, 
struck me as interesting throughout the the entire discourse of the evening, um, but there was one in particular that I wanted to, I guess, get a sense of elaboration on. Um, and there was the, it was the topic of racialization and, and I guess its correlation to Asian Americans and how Asian Americans are perceived in the, you know, the greater like, white diaspora. Um, and then it also relates to this issue of um, race and um, ethnicity. I'm wondering, and, and because I've been thinking about this a lot personally, and um, I've come to this conclusion that I would posit that um, perhaps the circumstances which bring uh, a people or uh, an ethnicity or, an, or color or whatever you'd like to call it to this country has a great deal to do with how they may be perceived um, by the larger populace or the greater uh, body of people at whole. Um, a great deal of Asian Americans, for example, came here for political reasons and not necessarily economic in certain senses in, or in, in certain, um, I guess, segments within the Asian American community. They're here because um, the politics of their country, it was turbulent, um, so on and so forth. Uh, they come here, I guess, with a greater sense of, I, I don't know, it's, it's difficult to explain and there are a number of different factors involved, but what I'm trying to get at is um, it, I, I think it has to do with perhaps circumstances in the country which in fact do cause people to come here. And I, I would, I guess, ask what either of you may feel about that or do you feel that it in fact plays a role? Well, I, I certainly think it does play a role and I think that, uh, I mean, what you put your finger on is the, is the very fact that this, this thing called Asian America hovers, I think, hovers uncomfortably a lot of times between uh, a concept of ethnicity, kind of the old immigrant model of being an American, and a concept of race. Uh, and there are different circumstances, as you say, where one aspect of that is emphasized more than another. And I think certainly if you want to compare in gross the Asian American community slash experience slash entity with the African American, then certainly in gross you have exactly that difference that you point to, that uh, it is a circumstance of voluntary immigration uh, propelled oftentimes by political uh, uh, forces uh, that brings Asian Americans here. Now that said though, I think uh, you, know, you can look throughout this country's history and certainly in, in, as I was alluding to at the very beginning, in, in recent political history, as recent as 18 months ago, uh, and, re and be reminded of the ways in which, however voluntary my parents' immigration was, however voluntary uh, and free, in a sense, and driven by politics rather than necessity, force, or, uh, or slavery, uh, the migration of Asians was to this country, there is still, in a lot of the discourse about who belongs, uh, this ambivalence, I think, uh, about whether Asians really belong, or whether Asians are really just kind of this fascinating facsimile of real Americans. Um, you know, I think there, there, there is an undertone, you know, what, as, someone who, as someone who has worked a fair bit in the media, I mean, what was maddening to me was that these attitudes weren't so much, to my mind, coming from the man on the street. They were coming from our highly educated, highly tolerant media elite, uh, you know, in very subtle, insinuating ways, you know, whether it was just a repertorial failure to distinguish between Asians and Asian Americans, whether it was just a question of uh, gratuitously mentioning that a certain donor or a certain political player 
was Korean American. Whether, you know, just these small subtle things which came from a class of people which uh, you'd think would be attuned to these sorts of questions. And, uh, you know, all of which is a long way to say that, uh, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I do not get into this to, to begin a, a parade of, uh, of uh, victimology and see who can march the farthest and the longest. But I do think that it's important to, to recognize that, uh, as I was saying before, it's precisely the fact that so much of the Asian American experience is rooted in migration and free immigration that is at the root of a lot of these problems right now. When you talk about Asian Americans today, you're talking about a community that is, and this may surprise a lot of people, that is two-thirds foreign-born. Uh, you are talking about a community that, you know, with all the internal diversity, has that one common streak in it, which is that I'm actually quite in the minority as someone who's second generation, born here, native speaker. Uh, and I think that has everything to do with the fact then that, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, when Americans start to think about in a time of global identity flux, think about who's American and who's not, well, it's quite easy to kind of look at those who are the most recent and most numerous newcomers and say, well, they're not quite. <clears throat> Thank you very much. I have a question for uh, Eric Liu. Uh, and by the way, uh, Professor um, Apaya, I'm in the middle of uh, my father's house, and it's fantastic work. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Uh, 1195 at Old Dominion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to correct him. I have a hardcover. It's more like, it's more like 40 bucks. Uh, Eric Liu, uh, you talked about white privilege uh, in, uh, in its uh, theoretical, uh, 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 philosophical context here uh, in, the, uh, in the dorms and at, uh, at Columbia. But then you went on, you kind of lapsed into ebonic affectations to suggest that, well, up in Harlem, uh, the blacks up there, they be no one that they real know uh, white uh, privilege. Uh, I live, uh, I'm a black in Harlem, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I see a lot of black behavior about which I feel oppressed and about which does, which uh, in fact oppresses me. Uh, white privilege uh, was, I guess, you'll have to explain to me what that is in Harlem that I am oblivious to, about which I should be more attuned to. Um, one thing that I haven't heard in the discussion all night, and it's a very, a very important fact in the, in the evolution of uh, our racial discourse, is that the arguments which can no longer be made, primarily by minorities, with any convincingness at all. 35 years ago, James Baldwin debated William Buckley and said to him, well, Buckley, you know, you're crazy because sure, there's dirt in Harlem, but when, when a, uh, a Harlem Negro throws trash on the streets, he's doing so as a political act. And at the time, Baldwin got a standing ovation. And that kind of argument could not be made today by anyone with any plausibility. Louis Farrakhan would not accept that argument. So black behavior is, is least, <laughs> as I live in Harlem, is what I'm concerned about. Uh, you, you know, not so much uh, white privilege. Now, in Inside Out, uh, Professor Lowry is upset because his son decides to play hockey, as my dad was upset when I decided to, to play hockey. But is, I think that kind of outrage or, or <coughs> resentment is anachronistic. And uh, I think uh, perhaps what we, if you take hockey as a metaphor for 
um, assimilation and a conformity to uh, uh, behavior that, uh, for example, Mayor Giuliani would like to, to see more of, hence his popularity in Harlem. Then I think what we need in Harlem is uh, more hockey. <laughs> if I could just respond, I mean, well, I, hold, on, hold on a minute. Let me, because uh, I mean, what I actually argue in my book was it's I I I, uh, I uh, criticize myself. I say my instinct was that I didn't want the boy to play hockey. But on second thought, and after my wife, you know, pulled my coat, uh, I realized that, you know, I couldn't tell the boy how to be black. You know, the boy was born in 1991. I was born in 1948. <laughs> How, however it's going to work out, it's going to be different than my story. So the end of the day is, we hope he'll be black. We believe he's going to be black. But whatever that black, <laughs> he's going to be black. He is black. But whatever that blackness consists in, it will not be my sensibilities about you know, popular sports or whatever. That's, so that's the bottom line on that. I just wanted to be clear. So well, I just wanted to make a point of clarification, because I'm not sure uh, if, if uh, if you were conflating a couple different comments. I mean, I, I, I did make the point that uh, whiteness is the kind of great lurking uh, elephant in the room that no one seems to want to talk about or be able to get a grasp of. But uh, I did not have anything actually to say at all about Harlem and how whiteness might relate to that. So I don't know if that was um, the conflation of different comments. But, but I will say, I mean, following up on, on exactly that point, that. Um, I mean, when I talk about whiteness in this kind of vague, general, philosophical sense, I mean, of course, whiteness exists in all these levels, but one of the greatest, I think, is exactly what uh, Glenn is alluding to uh, in that story about hockey. I mean, that whiteness kind of includes, uh, whiteness exists not only in the literary sense that Tuani talks about. Okay. Oh. <laughs> 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 but, but let's let's nevertheless let, okay. let Eric finish his point. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thanks. I'm off the hook. No. Uh, the, I mean, the only the, the, the gist of the point was that uh, whiteness exists not only as this kind of airy, invisible baseline against which all else is defined, but that whiteness has legitimately or not, certain cultural content. And hockey is part of that, I suppose, as we define it today. Uh, and I think part of the challenge for us in not only naming and identifying whiteness, but beginning to sort of subvert the hold that it has on our imagination is to do exactly as Glenn says he was persuaded to do in raising and schooling the next generation. We are trying to narrow the definition and power of whiteness. <laughs> I think in all these ways, and I'm not from Harlem, but I will say if you sit in a black community where there is no Xerox machine, no stationary store, no um, a, a decent uh, grocery store, and you have a TV, you can observe white privilege and you can feel your lack of it. You, you can observe that white communities do not um, go without policing. I was able to observe on the news last night that uh, the community of Wall Street was able to They're provide five. subsidy to get a police station. Um, that is um, what we're talking about. And uh, in my community, uh, people were not able to raise enough money to buy new bo books for the public school on my corner. Now, someone from the suburbs might say, why would people on a given block have to buy books for a public school on the corner? I, I don't even have children in that school because I don't have children. 
but I'm like trying to uh, contribute enough to get some books because they, uh, the Board of Ed here did not put books in public school libraries for a period of eight years. Every classroom has to buy its own books. That means poor people do not have books that their children can bring home, period. And part of that privilege is access to a job. And so for me, uh, I, I look at race problems as they play out in my neighborhood and I say, we need an economic base in this neighborhood. Uh, some way for people to be employed, which would perhaps justify the homilies of teachers in the school down the street who are saying, you need this education to get a job. And uh, perhaps to like keep that vision uh, possible and there. And hockey may be your way to get that education if we <laughs> are able to raise enough money to buy hockey sticks for the school. So it's, it's really very much about economics, too. Well, I just want to quickly address, I did, wasn't listening carefully because I didn't know it was directed to me, but I, what I did pick up was on this whole notion <laughs> about behavior. And, and, and thinking about this, I did jot down some, some thoughts before this whole symposium. And one of the things I think about the real intolerance today is actually a subtle, we talked about the subtleties with regard to colorblind a little bit, but there's also very subtle, I've, I read Contract for America very carefully, I've read Shelby Steele very carefully, and there's a way that bad behavior gets seen as pathological or systemic problems in the black community, and systematic problems is seen as bad behavior. Now let me just throw a couple of these out. Things like drug abuse, welfare abuse, violent crime, and gang activity. Now we know that happens, but that's bad behavior of a certain individual. There's not that many people in gangs. That's gang problem, but that's not that. But then things like unemployment, if you read New Kingish, it's like that's a personal problem. They just not personal responsibility act. You just have to pull yourself up. Unemployment is not a personal problem. Um, Incarceration rates. The man, if we wanted to have colorblind, mandatory minimums. The cocaine, one dollar, one to, I mean, the ounces thing. That I mean, that's a really important disparity. Um, and the poor getting poor. Again, that seems like some. It's the individual behavior that gets marked when the poor, and that's a structural economic phenomenon that that's happening. So when you look at gang as the systemic, pathological culture, that's the. But that's just individual behavior. But that's seen as the systemic. But then unemployment seems like the individual. And these, the way the media takes up this distinction between kind of the culture of poverty and individual bad behavior, I think they've got them all mixed up. And so that was the one thing I did pick up from your comment that I did want people to kind of share. Because I do think that that's a new intolerance, is that I think people got them backwards, where individual bad behavior is seen as systemic, and then the systemic is seen as individual. I'd like to comment briefly because I don't want Lee to leave here without us disagreeing about something. <laughs> <laughs> we don't disagree that unemployment is a systemic problem, but I and we may not disagree about anything at all, but I, I want to say there are behavioral issues. I mean, I regret the way that we've slid down this slippery slope so that, you know, black illegitimacy can now be the currency in some people's, you know, verbal uh, repertoire and a congressman can stand up during the welfare debate and hold up a sign that says, please don't feed the alligators. And say, you see, and down there in the Everglades, this is what we say because we don't want people feeding alligators and that's the way our policy has to be toward dependent okay. people too. You see the point, you know, because no, the alligators no. won't fend for wait, themselves. Wait, wait. You see, and that's a racist thing to be doing, but nobody said it was no, racist. No, but sex is bad behavior now too. 
Okay, but, 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 a lack but, of contraception is bad behavior, but abortion point. is bad behavior. These things are ascribed point, to us when it's convenient. My, my point is that children need parents to take responsibility for them. In a community, when mm -hmm. a large number of the children are not being taken responsibility for by both of their parents, mm -hmm. that's a problem. When um, there is abuse within the household by people who may be subject to systemic forces, but who act out in ways that are harmful to individuals, that's a problem. And when that becomes at a sufficiently large enough scale, it can be a problem that can be self-debilitating, self-limiting. And, uh, you know, so how many kids are in gangs? I don't know. There's too many. There's too many guns on the street. I think the guns should be gotten off the street. There are too many people willing to use those guns against other African Americans. That's a problem. Now, do we have to be cautious about the way in which we discuss these problems, mindful of the social influences, the systemic influences that generate them, maybe even generous in a certain sense in the way in which we forbear uh, in, in uh, you know, casting aspersions and making judgments? Yes, I think we do. But should we forego the examination of actual life on the ground in many of our African-American communities and uh, recognize what is uh, dysfunction and, and behavioral maladaptation? No, I don't think we should forego being willing to do that. So, you know. We shouldn't, but as long as it's called bad behavior, people tend not to look at it as systemic. They're not willing to look at the systemic forces. And people are apt to broaden the terms of bad behavior till they're in your house. And that's also to be looked at. Tulani, I think you should speak a bit louder or speak closer oh. to the mic. You know, they admonished us not to yell into the mics, but they didn't tell us not to be too quiet. Um, um, so I'm just saying bad behaviors, like, okay, then we don't have to look at treating the children of um, these situations that he's just listed, whether it's um, working with gang people or young kids who do not have parents. Um, if it's the personal bad behavior of these people who are you know, uh, discountable, then perhaps the system does not also have to in any way uh, offer mediation. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to uh, say thank you very much for this discussion tonight. I'm a first year law student here at uh, Columbia, and one of the things that's uh, been striking to me this year is having to uh, uh, learn or unlearn about how uh, race is no longer part of the law, at least not as a first-year law student. So um, that, that's been very difficult, and so this is quite refreshing. Refreshing. I have a couple of uh, questions. One, in light of the fact that uh, we are still talking about race and ethnicity and, and very uh, concrete concepts uh, that uh, certainly uh, influence our daily lives, social economic lives, uh, do you think that courses and books on multiculturalism are actually quite pernicious uh, to this type of dialogue? Uh, that's my first question. And the second one is, uh, given the fact that women are 50% of the academic community here at Columbia, why is there only one woman on the panel tonight? Because I'm so fierce, I'm like three. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't want to take away. I've read you. your work, no, Ms. I'm Davis. With you. I'm, I'm very, with you. I, you know. I have no idea. I'm down the, with you. <laughs> it's the one question it's I can't answer. But it's not. You know, <laughs> I have to ask. I, I just want to ask you a question, though, about when you say uh, there are these textbooks about multiculturalism mm -hmm. and is that pernicious? Are you saying because it, 
it's preventing discourse or, or, or the or, textbooks are bad? What, what, I'm really not up on what you're talking about. Um, I mean it in the sense that it somehow tries to move us away from these concepts which are still strongly influencing our lives and, and creating the, yeah, the paradigms in which we live in. However, it's almost as if you know, we don't have to talk about that anymore because now we're multicultural. Well, I, I, just kind of going back to an earlier statement I made, I think, I think the, the rise of, I haven't worked this quite out, but the rise of multiculturalism and the rise of a, this notion of a colorblind society work together at the same time, and I think make strange bedfellows. I haven't really thought this all the way through yet, but these books that talk about the culture that has gone all over the, the cultural exchange without talking about racial formation and racism, the kind of let's have ethnic food night as the cultural night, multiculturalism is pernicious in some respects because it says that difference is okay because we just have to understand and you know we all have different cultures, different histories and that's okay. But that doesn't address the, what we were talking about earlier, the systemic issues or the, even the historical issues in many respects because heritage is not history. And that's another important distinction that does not get brought into some of these, I, I'm not saying, that kind of hokey multiculturalism. I mean, there's this kind of a progressive multiculturalism that I think we're all part of that is very, very important. And I'm not trying to say that it's bad. I think those strides have been important. I'm glad that we have it. But the ones that paper down the kind of gross inequalities um, and it doesn't de demonstrate that Cubans are different than Mexicans in, this, in very political ways, I think it w doesn't address the kind of issues that are the most salient in the politics of America today. Well, as Lee is really onto something there in that multiculturalism, I mean, I mean, it was just last year, I think, that Nathan Glazer wrote a book entitled We Are All Multiculturalists Now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is a, you know, I mean, he had more nuanced arguments than that, but the title is telling, I think, and, and the author, in, you know, in combination with the title is telling. <laughs> Uh, and what it suggests is not only that he might be shifting in his views, but what it suggests also is, I mean, you have this dynamic uh, which begins with the hokier forms of multiculturalism uh, in which the very word and the very idea uh, is sort of commodified, basically. I mean, it's not unlike what happened with counterculture. In a sense, we're all counterculture now, too. You know, when you look at with television advertising and magazine advertising and the kind of slogans and the spirit of things, freedom and rebellion, uh, it's all woven into the kind of commercial uh, rhetoric that, that suffuses our brains. That's and I think in a similar way, multiculturalism has been kind of brought into the discourse that way so that you do have Kwanzaa in a way that is not only celebrated but also marketed. Uh, and once marketed, then in, a, in the minds of, I think, a lot of people, a certain box is checked off. And we're okay. We, we're multicultural now. And I think in that sense, the ideology of multiculturalism can be pernicious in that it can lull us into a sense that, uh, you know, just as we were saying before, that in Brazil, the, you know, the diffusion of race doesn't mean the end of racism. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I mean, the inclusion of more cultures in a textbook doesn't necessarily mean uh, any notion of uh, equality among uh, the groups that, uh, from which those cultures spring. Well, I think also just one last comment. Uh, multiculturalism came in with money attached to it, and in the cultural sphere, it caused a lot of trouble because we all had to fight over this pie, which was <laughs> maybe good in that it got us all in one room, but what the, what the system, people who are trying to manipulate the system did, um, is quite telling, and that is that there was, um, through different means, uh, money targeted for multicultural productions in theater, for instance. Um, 
one of the aspects of the funding was that a theater had to have an over a million dollar budget to qualify for it. That eliminated a lot of grassroots community-based theaters. Um, what the theaters did in order to qualify for the funding was look for writers with track records. Um, I, need I say that most of these pe projects were written by white people for um, performing audiences um, that were new uh, people of color coming into white institutions, um, seeing pieces written by white authors performed by um, people of color um, in, uh, in every possible configuration <laughs> from um, Aleut Indian to um, Native, uh, Native Oklahoma, uh, I'm sorry, Colorado Native Americans to um, African Americans to Chinese American. Um, there were projects of all of those descriptions which did not empower any of those communities. So uh, multiculturalism uh, really began to be defamed, I think, in a sense because uh, it came from on high. It came with a cynical kind of money attached to it that um, did not, in fact, um, change anything. Thank you very much. Actually, the previous uh, lady asked my questions, part, part of my question, but since I'm up, I'm up here, I uh, hope you'll let me uh, enjoy a la Andy Warhol, my five seconds of fame. <laughs> um, uh, my question is on uh, uh, a short comment on the issues of uh, race and culture, the so-called cultural diversity and power. Uh, my perception is that um, in terms of uh, representational, uh, artistic representation, my perception is that artistic representation is much based on perception. And we also must acknowledge that uh, minorities uh, have a different uh, perception of reality from that of the majority. Therefore, we minorities have no choice we're forced, and it's our responsibility, to um, insist on a, uh, a, uh, uh, a distinctive uh, identity and a, uh, a different voice. That is, if we want to participate in a discourse, uh, particularly in the redefining of the discourse, redefining the discourse, and, um, and uh, which I believe cannot be achieved without some kind of negation and resistance on the part of minorities. And finally, I believe, uh, a very important location of the resistance and negation, particularly the negation of uh, subordination, any kind of subordination must take place in the personal and the, uh, and the, uh, the everyday. But at the same time, it is uh, at the nexus of the personal and the everyday becoming the uh, historical and the uh, public. That is where uh, I guess the action is. Thank you very much. Yes, before I go on to make a statement that may seem a little naive to some people, I want to say that I'm not dismissing the fact that the issue is very complicated. Uh, I'm a white Latino and I'm half Brazilian, half Nicaraguan, so I deal with a lot of these issues about, you know, what is race, how are you viewed by other people, how do you view yourself, and how do you, you know, deal with the fact that when I walk down the street, Latinos don't believe that I'm Latino until I speak to them in Spanish. So I'm aware of that. But I want to make the, the, the sweeping statement and say that because this society suffers from something called delaria, it's race is all about money. And I mean, you brought a lot of examples in and most of the discussion, and I'm happy that it came back to money because I think it's been missing uh, from the economic factors been missing from the previous discussions. I've been to the previous two and it was a disaster in my opinion because it was all about theories. So a bunch of intellectuals sit down and talk about you know, very abstract theories 
that, and so I want to say, you know, the examples I've made up, the Asian scandal was about money. It was about the fact that Asians had the power to influence politics through money. The malls, you brought up the malls, very interesting. There you go to spend your money. It's how much money you have to spend. They don't care whether you're white, black, uh, yellow, whatever. They don't care. You know, if I had crossed the border uh, running across the river and had been poor, even if I were white, they don't care. You know, I'm still going to be taken away in a van back to where I'm coming from. The fact is, it's about money. Uh, you know, and Michael Jordan transcended, and Oprah Winfrey transcending the color barrier, it's about money. He's a millionaire, okay? He can buy anything he wants, and he can get all these companies millions of dollars, okay? And, 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 and to me, it just seems talking about transcending what? When, when people talk about Michael Jordan, they talk more about his shoes, okay? <laughs> they talk more about the fact that he owns a black Ferrari, and I'm sure he has accomplished a lot, and I, I admire him. He's a person that has a lot of integrity. I don't want to take that away, but I want to just focus on the economics. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's, that's that. And then prisons and gangs were all brought up here. It's about money. So I want to say, what can we do to change the view of working class people, like the policeman who you're saying, we're not thinking about the fact that he was ethnic, but that he was a black man. And furthermore, he was poor, so he was not going to sue the city. They're not going to go beat a man in a Mercedes, because they know. We sue this guy, we get sued, you know, millions of dollars, litigation, whatever, okay? So what do we do to change the minds of working people, okay, and shift the debate from this intellectual abstraction to a politicized debate where we talk about how do we change, we have to have change in the community inside economically <coughs> to give people a self-esteem to get up and do something. And that's not done through this debate and abstraction, it's done through some political agenda, some systematic uh, movement forward to talk about, we didn't talk about welfare here, we didn't talk about, you know, taking away of welfare in this country is, is amazing. The welfare issue, uh, you know, basically right now it's amazing to me. They're taking away all these programs when they should be putting them in. This, this idea that the economy is booming, in Harlem the economy is not booming. And employment in Harlem is huge in comparison to any other place. New York itself is like a third world country. Manhattan is like a third world country. So I would say, just to ask you, to please answer this question about you know, talking about economics. And it should be, I think, the foremost topic in everybody's mind, but it, it never is. Because working people don't get the opportunity, don't get the <coughs> space, as you said, to talk about the issues. You know, we only get all these abstractions of the media. And after, uh, talking about the media, the media is there to protect the interests of wealthy people. I mean, so uh, just to, to, to refer to this point, and then one question, very, uh, very, Clear question. <laughs> and that is, what do you think of, of thinking of affirmative action, not in terms of race, but in terms of money-based needs? Us. May, may I just say, not too unkindly, I hope, that uh, it seems to me that your remarks are themselves guided by a very respectable theoretical position, one that was articulated first in the 19th century with great clarity by Karl Marx, <laughs> uh, in, which, in, which, in which everything is reducible to, to the material, uh, to, to the economic forces. I mean, that's a crude, uh, it's a crude account, both of what you said and of what Marx said. Um, so I'm not sure that we've escaped theory just by talking about economics and talking about the working class. Well, I do think, I think that's true. I do think that uh, it's a shame that there isn't a fifth week in, in February because there, there, is a, there is a discussion to be had about intolerance and class, in particular, the intolerance that we have as Americans for talking about class. 
I mean, I think there is this, you know, as hard as it is to get people to talk uh, about uncomfortable issues of race and identity, class is something that is even more in a strange way taboo. Certainly in politics, if you are a Democrat who shares your concerns about inequality and incomes and shares these concerns about the fact that uh, uh, class inequities drive so many of our race and, 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 and policy debates, uh, you are within a second of uttering two words accused of uh, instigating class warfare. And that is, you know, that is a, uh, being a class warfare, uh, class warrior uh, is only a, you know, short step away in terms of the opprobrium from being called a racist in this country, in, in our politics. I mean, it's just something you don't want to be identified as. And I think as far as a political program is concerned, I mean, you know, I mean, again, deriving from, from uh, the associations that you would have with Marx. I mean, I think that there has got to be a revitalization and a reconnection of people like the people who are in this room and the people who lead and run and populate the ranks of organized labor. Uh, because I think uh, that's where you're going to bring issues of class to the fore. It's, it's, it may not, you know, unions may not be the best vehicles. In many ways, unions are ossified and uh, and inefficient uh, to say nothing of corrupt vehicles in some context. But unions are there, and unions can do a lot of what you're talking about, I think, to put issues of class and inequality back on the table. Because I think, I, I do agree, once those issues are back on the table, we see race in a different light. I mean, it's no news to anybody here, the, the, the famous line that Du Bois uttered about the wages of whiteness, that you know the, his whole understanding of the way that working class whites in the, in the 1800s uh, tolerated their working class subordinate status because, damn it, at least they were white. And I think in more subtle and complex ways, that mentality is, is still with us. And I think that uh, the organization of labor in a way that is truly multicultural and truly uh, forward thinking this way could, could do part of what you're looking for. Uh, I would just uh, echo Anthony's point that well, I, I don't, I, you didn't actually make this point, but I think you might have made it that uh, <laughs> that Marx was wrong. Yeah, no, I, yeah not not about everything, but but about about uh, sort of historical determinism and sort of the material aspect, the economic aspect driving everything. I think that's wrong, as a matter of fact. So there's a there's an independent sphere of uh, cultural considerations that need to be a part of this discourse. But I don't disagree that, and I said as much here, that the um, intensity of the problem that in this society would be much mitigated by dealing with uh, issues of economic opportunity and, and, and the rest would be very much uh, diminished. But you know, one of these days, if not Michael Jordan, then his son is going to get pulled over in that black Ferrari for the DWB offense, you know, driving while black. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the color of the car. And it's not going to really matter how much money, you know, they've got. They don't ask you if you've got a PhD kind of thing, you know, an old joke in the African-American community. Mm. You're still a Negro or a nigger or whatever to the guy that's got you in that situation and, uh, and all of that. You know, so. And I, I actually, Professor Scott could probably talk a little bit more about this, but race historically has always kind of, I mean, if, if the color of money was green and that was it, I mean, trade unions, um, the monopoly, I mean, just there's been so many instances where people could have made a lot of money just by integration 
or kind of the populist movement or had shared the wealth, but they like refused because kind of like, right? And it was always been used as a wedge. I mean, consistently, it is today. And I mean, I wish it was just money because that might be an easier way out, but it's not. I mean, it, it, I mean, there's just so many more historical examples than these little individuals. Well, Michael Jordan's not little, but these individuals that have transit. When you talk about groups, it's just it's it's much more complicated than just money, and our history demonstrates that time and time and time again. No, I agree with that. That's why I said in the beginning that I'm aware of the compli how complicated it is. I just wanted to take it to a sort of extremes to bring the point up and make right. the point. So that was. Th I appreciate the answers. Th thank you very much. Um, we were sort of aiming to stop at 10, but since there are three people already up here, Four. if you... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to stop now. Uh, 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 people, I think, were expecting to be able to leave at 10. So if you have some brisk thing to say, each of you, I'd be happy to ha have you say it and then a brisk reply, but let's uh, not make... Uh, and I suspect people will start leaving anyway, but let's get going. Okay, I think you discussed this a lot, but I just want to see if you can clarify it. Do you think it is more important uh, to transform people's minds and concepts about race or redistributing the wealth so that all poor, pe poor and working class people prosper? Okay. I think I'm, if there are going to be questions, let's take some questions and then we'll, you get yeah. some answers. Okay, I have a question for Professor Baker. It was regarding the uh, documentary on Henry Louis Gates Jr. that you brought up <laughs> and about how, uh, uh, what I got from the documentary, aside from the fact that Eldridge Cleaver has not aged very well, uh, but aside from that, I, I got that uh, as far as W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, goal for a talented 10th, um, changing the way the, uh, the black community is, they, it seemed to go in a direction of that that plan has failed. And I wanted to know if, uh, if you got that, do you disagree or agree? And then they mentioned about the gap between both the black and the white communities of the rich and the poor. Do you see that gap growing or do you see any chances of that gap diminishing? Real quick, I think that gap is can growing. Just, I, I'm going to try oh, and okay. just take these as questions and I'll briskly resummarize them and then you can. Okay, okay um, many black men that I know um, are constantly living in between two different worlds, um, the academic, professional world, and that uh, which they're more comfortable with, like their own community parties or whatever. And when I see them taking the errands off and going to work, taking them, putting them back on at the party, you know, wearing the suit at work and then wearing their normal clothes on the street or saying ain't when talking about Harlem or up when talking to an African American woman. Um, and these people are often called sellouts. And I was wondering, what do you feel about that? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm a victim of this too, of going back and forth. I, I think it's hard not to, but I also feel that um, we are, in a, in a sense, sellouts because we're, if we continue this, then there will never be dreadlocks in the corporate world. There will never be ethnic dress in the corporate world. And um, I think we got the question. All right. <laughs> to um, continue on this comment, actually, it, it seems like you only have the cachet to comment on um, race in front of certain groups if you are identified as someone who, say, lives in extremis. Like, I, I went to Middlebury College, and, you know, as soon as I got there, I was set up as, you know, this reasonable black guy, you know, wears blazers, blah, blah, blah. You have a question about blackness, come and ask him. And he won't yell at you. And I, you know, got known for that, and I'm not sure where it stopped being a skill and became an identity. And as soon as I, you know, found myself um, unintentionally ingratiated 
in the white community because of that, when I would say do what Mr. Lowry called farting in public in terms of being too strident as a black person, someone would say something like, well, Carlos, you are the whitest person I know, you know, just because I was an English major and I can live and breathe Shakespeare. And when I come back to the Bronx and go back to my old high school and I speak to these students about going on to college, they look at me with eyes that say, who are you and why are you talking to us? You are no longer from where we are. What do you have to say about this sort of schism between where you've gone academically and where you've come from racially? Um. Uh, my question is a little bit complex. I'll try to be brief. Um, you mentioned um, this idea of people thinking, well, at least I'm, even though I'm poor, at least I'm white. And I notice um, sometimes on, on the campus here, I'm a, a law school student, that people have this idea, well, I may not be white, but at least I'm uh, Chinese, or at least I'm Arabic, Arabic, or at least I'm, I'm Jewish or something like that. And this idea popped into my, it's been in my mind for several years because I had an opportunity to live and study um, in China for two years. And I got a chance to speak with a number of uh, Chinese people there. And it really struck me the similarities that, uh, of issues that they have to deal with, um, the same sort of issues that African Americans deal with here in America. And that is, uh, I would go into beauty salons and on the walls, they would all be white models modeling the hairstyles and um, uh, you go to a, a mall and all the advertisements, many of the advertisements are white, uh, beautiful, blonde, blue eyes. And I would speak to some of the people about this issue and they say, yeah, um, the standard, this idea of whiteness is becoming you know, the, the model. And I, I said, wow, this is amazing because it's not just America, it's, it's around the world. And then that struck me. But another thing that struck me was that uh, while I lived there, I encountered racism over and over again. So we had this, this two things here. You had this sort of solidarity, this understand this commonality of the struggle against this white standard, but also this idea that I'm Chinese, you're black, at least I'm Chinese, this sort of thing. And when I got back to America, I was struck again by the lack of coalitions among uh, minority groups, ethnic groups. And I was wondering, um, I, I put this to all the panel members, if you think the um, sort of, for example, this pan-Asian ideal or this um, African-American solidarity ideal or uh, Jewish-American solidarity, is that um, diminishing or, or, or forfeit, forfeiting possible opportunities of coalition building? And if you don't think so, um, I wonder if you, you think that we need to do more to continue to build coalition.